Welcome to Coffee Up by Market Lane Coffee, a podcast for our growing community of like-minded businesses who want to serve delicious, sustainable, and ethically sourced coffees. My name is Tyson. This is the second podcast of our three-part series, Origin, Variety, and Process. Throughout this series, Christian and I will catch up with Jason, Market Lane's co-founder, to discuss how a coffee's origin, its variety, and the way that it's processed will differ greatly from one region to another. We'll talk about how these differences will impact not only the flavor profile in your cup, but also how these coffees are produced and evidently how much they will cost. In today's episode, Christian and Jason talk about coffee varieties. Yes, much like the apple and orange varieties that you may come to know in your grocery stores, or grapes that are destined to become wine, there are coffee varieties too. You may have heard of the highly prized Gesha variety, which has absolutely nothing to do with Japanese culture, but takes its name from the Gesha district in southern Ethiopia, where the variety is said to have originated. We will also zoom out one level of botanical taxonomy to talk about coffee's two most prominent species, Caffea arabica and Caffea canifora, also known as robusta. So without further ado, here are Jason and Christian talking about coffee varieties. So most people have at least heard the names Arabica and Robusta before, um, but would you mind giving us a little bit of a breakdown between the two? What makes them different? Well, genetically, they're quite different species of coffee. They're both coffee, but they're yeah, genetically quite different. Uh, Robusta is generally found at lower elevations and Arabica is found at higher elevations. Uh, there are a number of differences with uh, um, the shape of the plant and um, things like yield and disease susceptibility. Uh, in general, Robusta is uh, better at tolerating things like well, like leaf rust, any pests, um, droughts, things like that. Um, Arabica is basically just more sensitive than uh, Robusta. And is that partially because caffeine in coffee is an embittering agent? Yeah, well, the caffeine levels in Robusta and Arabica are different, and they're basically to do with the plant's defenses. So um, caffeine is a, it is a bittering agent. You find it in um, the leaves, but also the fruit of the coffee. And it's to protect the plant from, uh, from animals eating it, basically. So when they eat a cherry off a Robusta plant, they find it bitter and they're more likely to stay away from it. Um, Arabica doesn't need as many defenses because it's grown at higher elevations or it's found at higher elevations. So over the years, it's adapted to just reduce its caffeine levels to where it needed to be. Um, and for that you know, higher elevation environment where there are less pests, less animals to chew on the coffee, then um, it's sort of leveled out to a, a lower sort of um, amount of caffeine. Uh, so in general, why does the specialty coffee world tend to prefer Arabica coffee? Taste is the primary reason. Uh, Arabica coffee is sweeter. It's less bitter. It's, um, it's got a better balance of acidity and sweetness. So does that mean Arabica coffee is always an indication of quality? Or is that something that's just a, a bit of marketing? Uh, I think generally it is because you can, of course, you can produce bad Arabica coffee. You can have a very defective Arabica coffee. Uh, but if someone's bothering to plant Arabica or to sell Arabica, usually it's because they're looking for a better quality coffee. So I think generally, yes, although it's not a very good indicator of, of quality. You can have, you can have you know, well, well-grown and well-produced Robustas um, oh, yeah. that have a better cup quality than others. Um, and yeah, conversely, you can have a very poor Arabica. So. 
That being said, uh, where does Robusta coffee typically end up? It does end up in some espresso blends, so sort of traditional Italian espresso blends. They'll use anywhere up to about 30% Robusta, um, and they'll use that for um, the appearance of the coffee, so it tends to you know, create a, a nice thick head of crema on espressos. Um, and they do it for the taste as well. It gives a really strong sort of punchy espresso. Um, and they do it for cost as well. So um, Robusta is, you know, less than half the price of Arabica because it's easy to grow and um, it has high yields. Um, it's also found in instant coffee. So instant coffee, we use quite a high proportion of Robusta and decaf coffee, I think, a lot as well. So decaf blends will tend to decaffeinate Robusta because it has a very strong sort of presence in the cup. Um, once you flush all the caffeine out, it's still quite quite strong and, and present. I think that's a similar reason to why it's used in instant coffees because it's easy to, or easier than Arabica to produce a sort of a punchy sort of, you know, present coffee than <laughs> compared to uh, Arabica. Um, so moving on to varieties, um, I guess there are a number of varieties of Arabica coffee which commonly populate specialty coffee shelves. Um, some examples of these are red and yellow Bourbon, Katura, Katawai. Uh, are you able to tell us a little bit about each one? Um, does each variety have its own unique flavor notes? Yeah, so there are lots of uh, varieties of Arabica. Um, broadly, they're broken down into three groups. Um, there's Ethiopian land race varieties. There's uh, Bourbon and Typica types, um, and then there's the hybrid blends. So mostly um, like Sachimor and um, and Catamore types. So they're blended. I'll, I'll go back into those. But so Ethiopian land race types are found um, growing wild in Ethiopia. Um, they're also found in certain pockets where they're grown basically in isolation. So they all have taken selections from the wild, from forests, and grown, grown particular plants or particular types of these, um, these native uh, varieties pretty widely, um, and they've come sort of typical to the area. Um, other types of Ethiopian land races are um, selections. So like the uh, Jimma Agri Agricultural Research Centre did a lot of um, work in the 70s to, to find varieties that produced you know higher yields or were a little bit more susceptible so they would take selections from the forest and do test plants and uh, find find varieties that suit typical areas um, and we found this um, with some of our suppliers who plant coffee around Chikiso or Uraga in um, Ural, um, they plant you know variety number 74112 which is a very dry name for a particular selection that the Jimma Agricultural Research Center um, came up with um, so those are all Ethiopian land race varieties. Um, the second types are the Bourbon and Typica types, and they're the most common types we see in Central America, South America, Colombia, um, things like that. Yeah, so Bourbon and Typica types um, originally come from Ethiopia. They were taken to Yemen very early, and they don't really know how they were taken to Yemen. Um, they think it was around the 17th century that they were taken to Yemen. Um, quite a bit later, around 1850, some seeds were taken to um, Reunion Island. It was then called Babon Island. Um, and these seeds um, ended up going out to um, South America, Central America, to Brazil. Um, and um, there they were planted quite widely around, around those areas. Um, typically took a slightly different path, but again, it was taken from, from Yemen. So seeds were taken from Yemen. They went, from there they went to India. From there they went to Java, so part of Indonesia. Um, and those plants on Indonesia formed the sort of the first typica types. Um, so genetically, they're, they're reasonably similar. Um, and, and now we find that almost all 
um, coffee production in the world is based on these two very tight genetic sort of bottlenecks. So with um, varieties like Bourbon and Katura, et cetera, are you able to sort of predict flavor profiles based on those varieties or is it a bit more complicated than that? No, you can with, uh, I mean, the different types um, you can. So between Ethiopian land races, um, Bourbon and Typica types and the Sachemore, the Timor blends, you can predict the flavor profile broadly. Within the Bourbon group, like between Bourbon and Katura, it's, it's hard to say exactly what they're going to taste like. It's more a combination of Bourbon and where it's grown or okay. Katura and where it's grown. Um, Bourbon, and, Bourbon has a very, like, very favorable taste profile. So it's usually clean and sweet. It's usually got a nice sort of cherry sweetness or sort of a balanced stone fruit acidity. Um, the Timor types tend to be a little bit harsher in the cup profile because they're, um, they're an intra-species blend with Robusta. Oh, I see. So we didn't talk about that before, but yeah. So um, in the 1920s, there was a um, there was a, uh, a arabica plant for, planted very close to some robusta, and they produced um, a new sort of uh, species of coffee or intraspecies specific blend, I guess is what it's called. Um, and they called this uh, the Timor hybrid. So it's a hybrid. It's a very stable, genetically very stable plant that you can um, that has some of the you know, beneficial qualities of the Arabica plant and some of the beneficial qualities of the Robusta plant. So the taste profile is quite good, although it's, you know, a little bit harsh. We find it a bit harsh and um, a bit similar to Robusta, but it does have really good yields. Um, it's disease resistant and um, it's really fair. Like farmers really like planting Timor types because they're, they're very stable and they're easy to grow. Um, those types were then blended with a couple of other Bourbon and Typica types, um, like Katura and uh, Villasachi. Um, and those, uh, those gave us Sachimor and Katimor. And Katimor and Sachimor are two, um, they're actually not technically specifically individual varieties, but they're sort of, you know, groups of varieties. So, I mean, uh, you mentioned earlier about the way that um, Arabica tends to populate higher elevations and um, Robusta tends to be a bit lower, closer to sea level. Um, do different varieties of Arabica coffee prefer different elevations and climates, or is it just that they tend to flourish at different elevations and climates? Uh, so Ethiopian land race varieties tend to um, thrive at higher elevations, and uh, the Sachimor and um, Katamore types tend to be lower elevations. Um, High elevation in this case means, you know, pretty much above 1600 meters above sea level at the equator. Um, if when you start moving different sort of latitudes, then um, you can grow it at lower elevations um, because of the cooler climate at those latitudes. But yeah, so that, that, at those elevations, that's when the plant thrives. It doesn't have as much to do with uh, the slow ripening period that we have used to often hear about, but it's more about um, how healthy the plant is at those elevations. Would factors like this influence the varieties a farmer may choose to produce on their plot of land? Absolutely. So, you know, if, if you are a farmer that has a farm that runs from 500 metres to 1,000 metres above sea level, then you definitely would just wouldn't plant, you know, Geisha or SL28 or, um, or you know, maybe even Bourbon or Typica um, because those varieties are extremely difficult to grow at those elevations and typically you won't end up with a nice cup at all. So there's almost no... No point in growing those varieties. Um, you know, similarly, if you have a very windy spot on a hill, there's almost there's not much point growing sensitive for um, varieties that have a really good cup profile that might not thrive that well um, in windy conditions because um, it, there's almost no point to do it. 
Is there anything then that you would consider sort of an idyllic landscape for a coffee farm? And in such cases, do people have a bit more options in the varieties that they may choose to plant? Yes, well, I mean, Ethiopia is, you yeah, know, okay. like, yeah, because in Ethiopia, the plants are, um, they have evolved to suit that climate. So if you can find a little slice of Colombia that is very much like Ethiopia, then it's, you know, a great place to grow Ethiopian landrace varieties. Um, we see that in um, in Bolivia. So, you know, Bolivia around Karanavi, there are some really beautiful areas that are very similar to the highlands of Ethiopia. They are, you know, partially covered with uh, second growth forest and they are, you know, they have a great amount of rainfall. They are the right elevation um, and they are the right distance from um, the equator. So they do have some, you know, some of the great sort of growing qualities that allow you to grow um, you know, really great tasting varieties. Uh, now you mentioned the geisha variety before. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about geisha, uh, why it's sought after and why it's so expensive as well? Yeah, I think we should clarify that we're talking about Panamania, like Panama geisha, um, rather than um, other geishas. There are, I think there's a bit of confusion around uh, the you know, genetic link between some geishas and other geishas. But I think, yeah, for clarity, we'll talk about the Panama geisha because that is a really specific example. Um, yeah, so that, that came to um, prominence in 2005 with Hacienda Esmeralda when they submitted it to a competition called Best of Panama. They won a really high price for the coffee. So they won at um, $20 per pound, which at that point was a, a really high record, um, a high price record for, for green coffee at an auction. And it won that much, it won with such a, you know, astounding price because of the cup quality. So no one had really tasted anything like it at the time. It was really vibrant, floral, you know, lots of jasmine and peach. Um, it was a really, very, really, very different coffee, you know, unique. Um, so it was favored for its price. Um, it is genetically a Ethiopian, it is related to Ethiopian land race varieties. Um, although it's technically like now they say it's quite different because it is a stable, um, and quite a different variety to um, other Ethiopian land race varieties. Yeah, so it's sought after because of the taste. Um, it's expensive because it's a very unique taste profile. Um, and it's still quite rare. You know, you don't have a lot of geisha grown at the moment, um, partially because it's difficult to find the right conditions to grow it. Um, and otherwise, it's, it's very difficult to grow okay. in the wrong conditions. Are there any other varieties that are also considered quite rare and expensive for that reason as well? Um, no, I think, I mean, Yemen, Yemen varieties, I think are really interesting because there's a new sort of, um, there's been a new push to sort of research the, the history and the genetics of some Yemeni varieties. Um, and they found they're quite different and unique and have a really interesting taste profile. So that's probably the only other variety that I'd say is, um, has got that sort of prominence. Um, some varieties like SL28 and Batian and stuff like that, depending on where they're grown, they're kind of unusual. Um, so we don't see a lot of Batian grown outside of Kenya. Uh, and when we do, it tends to have a really interesting um, taste profile. And same with SL28, it's widely grown in Kenya where it's quite distinct. Um, and then when we find it grown in Central America, it, it's usually you know quite exciting because it has a you know quite a different taste profile. Um, but nothing, nothing compared to Geisha. I mean, so for SL28 types, you could pay, you know, five, $5 a pound, $7 per pound to a producer. But for Geisha types, you can pay, you know, you can pay pretty much anything like $15, $20 per pound 
Um, and, and when it starts to go into competitions, it could be hundreds of dollars per pound. Uh, would Java be another one or is it more that like Java grown in Bolivia is what makes it a bit more unusual and rare? Um, yeah, in the case of Bolivia, I think that is, that is right. Um, we've also just found the taste profile of the Java grown in Bolivia to be really great. Um, it's really fruity. It does remind us a bit of geisha um, for its floral sort of cut profile, but um, intense sweetness as well. Um, so we, we pay more for that, for, for that variety when it's grown in Bolivia, for mm -hmm. sure. So you mentioned SL28 before, SL standing for Scott Labs. The two most famous varieties being SL28 and SL34. Why do they have those names and what was the problem that they were trying to solve? Uh, well, this is another research facility, so agricultural research facility, um, this one based in Kenya. And they were um, looking to address things like, you know, drought resistance um, and some disease resistance, um, resistance to pests and things like that. So similar to what they did at the um, Jimma Agricultural Research um, Center is they would take varieties that they have planted already in Kenya or they would take wild varieties from Ethiopia and they would test plant them and see which ones um, did best in, in Kenya. Um, and they found SL28 and 34 to be the best sort of balance of great cup profile, but also disease resistant drought resistant and pest resistant. Um, since, since then it's, it's found to be quite susceptible to rust, to leaf rust, um, and that's caused a bit of a problem. So um, there are other varieties planted in Kenya that are more resistant to, um, to fungus and leaf rust and things like uh, Ruri 11, but the taste profile is not, not as good. So in some cases people are trying to hedge their bets a little bit? Well, I think it's more the government is trying to promote um, farmers to be planting more resistant varieties to increase yields rather than just looking strictly at the cup quality. Mm. And I think in some ways this returns back to that bottlenecking you mentioned before. Um, as all coffee is native to Ethiopia, it sort of spent the last couple of hundred years traveling around the world, but they're largely just cultivars of Tipica coffee, um, which means that we're sort of dealing with a lack of biodiversity. Um, what is this lack of biodiversity? What sort of risks does it pose for the coffee world? Well, um, I should say also that there, there is a, a very large diversity of um, coffee genetics in Ethiopia. So it's, it's not, you know, not really a bottleneck there. The bottleneck is with Bobon and Tipica types like Katura and Katwai and things like that. So I think that's where we have to be careful. Um, uh, it, it does pose a really big risk because um, when there are slight changes in the climate or if there's a slight change in rainfall patterns or temperature, um, it can produce disastrous results. Um, and so for a country like, um, say, Colombia for a long time had uh, a lot of Katsura planted um, and they switched to planting a bit of Castillo and the Colombia, Colombia variety to diversify what they had planted um, because, of, because of that risk that they see a change in rainfall or they see an increase in temperature and all of a sudden there are many more, there's an outbreak of um, you know, leaf rust or pests or things like that. Um, do people ever try to return to find different varieties of coffee in Ethiopia that could solve these problems? Um, they definitely try. Um, uh, Ethiopia is, I, I think, quite rightly protective of their genetic um, diversity and the genetic stock that they have. Um, I think there are some really interesting ethical questions around what you know, what it means to take a variety from Ethiopia and plant it in another country and make a lot of money from it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you think about the Panama geisha variety, um, if some of that money went back to Ethiopia or 
something like that, or there was a, a licensing fee or something, yeah. um, that would go a long way, you know. And and Ethiopia, I think, is within its rights to um, protect what it what it has um, to a certain extent. I'm not sure what the future holds. There aren't many um, licensed coffee varieties out there, and I think we'll see uh, more of that in the future. Um, and hopefully, Ethiopia will do that. They'll they'll look at. Um, research facilities like the Jimmo Agricultural Research Facility, they'll and then they'll license out particular varieties um, and um, sell them. Basically, it doesn't happen often because um, coffee can propagate from its own seeds. So once you have bought one, you you can basically continue to plant and um, cultivate that variety. Right. So aside from that, do you think that people may? try to tackle these problems of like leaf rust in the lab as opposed to going back to Ethiopia instead? Well, they are, definitely they are. Um, and, and there has been a strong interest in um, using the Timor variety to um, protect coffee from things like leaf rust. And, and there's been some success, definitely. Do you see any future changes to the way that coffee producers approach varieties? Um, for instance, we've been sourcing a bit more of the Choroso variety from Colombia, uh, and this seems to be an interesting point of differentiation for producers who are in the regions where that variety does well. Do you think other farmers will follow suit with that sort of thing? I think so. If it if it improves their you know if it improves their income or if it improves their yield or, or something like that, um, I think it's. You know, I think it can be dangerous for farmers to uh, shift away from what's traditional or what's normal. Um, in the case that, uh, you know, perhaps their farm is best suited to what's being grown there at the moment. Perhaps it's not. Um, but I think they, I think it should be made on a um, informed decision rather than just a, a sort of a guess or um, based on what coffee buyers say they like. Because obviously we're a vocal bunch and. Um, you know, we like the taste of geisha and we think yeah. there should be more of it, but yeah. obviously it's difficult to plant everywhere. So um, it shouldn't just be applied to, to farmers and it shouldn't be up to them to bear the risk of those yes. um, sort of whims that we have. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting point. I guess on the consumer end too, um, like you said, people like geisha and I guess would like to see more of it. Mm. Do you sort of imagine people approaching... Um, different varieties of coffee the same way that people might approach different varieties of wine. And so do you ever see sort of um, for the end consumer that variety becomes part of the selection process when they choose it back for home? I think we could. I, th I think we're a long way from that at the moment because the Bourbon and Typica types are so similar in taste that you don't really have the difference that you would have between Shiraz and Pinot Noir, for example. Um, so... I think it's definitely possible in the future. If there are going to be more types like the Yemen varieties or geisha or um, really distinct, uh, very different varieties that shine through their varietal characteristics no matter where they're planted or, you know, to a certain degree, um, then I, I think we could definitely could see more coffee marketed um, in that way and more interest from consumers in that. Thanks so much for listening. This was the second in our three-part series, Origin Variety Process. Following this initial series, Christian and I will be taking a deeper dive, focusing on each of the countries that Market Lane purchased coffee from, hearing first-hand stories from our coffee buying team, and learning a little more about the people who grow some of our favourite coffees. So if you like what you've been listening to, please consider subscribing so you won't miss an episode. Thanks again. We look forward to catching up with you over a coffee soon.